Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 66, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Looking very fetching in your Signosis t-shirt this week, Ravi. Oh yeah, I've, I've kind of been buying t-shirts actually from the Amiga OS podcast. Oh, okay. Amigos, yeah. Everythingamiga.com. They've got a nice design and I'm a backer so my name's on it. Patreon supporter. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> We've had a really busy week. I mean, I've... Uh, and a couple of days got back, got back from a trip in Norway where I went out to see the guys from a friend up, um, which um, I'm, you know, we've talked about friend up on the show before, but that is um, it's like a future cloud-based operating system. And uh, a lot of the ex-Commodore guys are working on it, including David Pleasance, um, Hogner, uh, Paul Lasser, who is, um, used to work on the Commodore 65 and projects like that. Oh, wow. I was hanging out with him in Norway over the weekend. So uh, I think I've got him to come on the podcast in a future week as well to give us the inside story on the C65 at some point. Oh, that's cool. Well, I was local. You, you see, <laughs> so I, did, I didn't have to go that far. And this was at the National Video Game Arcade. So it was the Dizzy Day. And this was the Oliver Twins' 30th anniversary of Dizzy. And a new game came out while you were there as well. The rumours were true. It did. And as soon as I went in the building, the Oliver Twins saw me and said, hey, we're unloading stuff from the car. Get it upstairs. <laughs> so I was there. Um, we had goodie bags. And I was there with the NBA staff filling goodie bags. So I really earned my uh, little audio clips from them. Yes, remember, Ravi's worked hard for this interview we've got this <laughs> week, so we'll do more on that in just a minute. The, uh, the story about the Mystery World Dizzy release and also the Dizzy Day at the National Video Game Arcade. And also you got your hands on the, uh, the Vega Plus. Oh, God, yeah. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. It exists. It exists. <laughs> it's real. So first of all, we've got to say a massive thank you to everyone who supported the show over the last week. Um, these are the people that have gone to theretrohour.com, left a donation to help with the running of the Retro Hour podcast. We appreciate all your help any penny that we get donated to the podcast goes back into the running of it and making the retro hour hall of fame this week we want to say a massive thank you to chris duckers steve duke ian pointer richard halling now if you want to leave a donation all you got to do is head to our website we've made it so easy you'll find a little paypal link at the now, of course, on this show, as well as giving you the latest goings-on in the world of retro, uh, we often look back as well, and we welcome on a veteran of the video games industry to give us a story of something huge in the history of gaming. And this week, my word, have we got an amazing guest. John Rittman is going to be our guest on the show this week. Totally, and it's like a kind of 8-bit special, isn't it, today? Mm. You know, we've got John Rittman, a new Dizzy game, a Vega. This is interesting stuff. Yeah, we don't just throw this together. No. <laughs> we do, but it worked out well. <laughs> uh, but yeah, obviously John Rittman behind games like, what, Batman on the uh, Sinclair Spectrum. Head Over Heels. And these are kind of like, you know, some of the first isometric 3D games, and he really pushed the boundaries of what you could do, you know, making these pretty big worlds inside, like, a Sinclair Spectrum memory space. Totally, and they're beautiful as well. You know, some of the art behind them and the kind of movement, um, what was it, Match Day? Yeah, the football well, games, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, in this interview that we've got this week, he's going to tell us why, you know, he still thinks Match Day is more fun than FIFA to this day, and, you know, many would agree, I, I imagine. And also, he did some really groundbreaking stuff, like having, like, the first checkpoints in games, which... Something everyone takes for granted now, but... Oh, God, dying and then having to go back to the very beginning. <laughs> it's, like, so frustrating. Yeah, whenever you play old games, it's like, you meant to do the whole game in three lives. It's like, yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, one sitting, yeah. <laughs> no chance. So John Rittman is going to be our very special guest on the Retro Hour in around 20 minutes from now. So before we get to that, then, let's find out all about this dizzy day at the National Video Games Arcade. Now, it happened last Saturday. Uh, you were there at the crack of dawn. Yeah, that was it. I was I was really early, actually. No one was there till about 12 o'clock. I was just wandering around. But it was great because it meant I got some time in the exhibition on my own. And this exhibition's amazing. It's it's like a room 
that's basically the Oliver Twins' bedroom. So even to the point that they've got the curtains from the 1970s, the original ones, no way. their mum and dad had saved them and they've put them up and it kind of smells a bit musty. Like, yeah. <laughs> Teenage boy from the 70s yeah, bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then they've got all their old monitors, including the kind of one that they won, the Commodore monitor that they won on television. Yeah, because they were on. It was uh, like a TV, like Saturday morning game show. Uh, yeah, well, I think TV Gary Newman was on yeah. it as well. And, and they won a competition to make a video game, didn't they? Yeah. yeah, and they'd already got the kind of console, so they were like, oh, we, we won a high-resolution monitor. So that's sitting there, the original monitor. But they've also got all the maps of how they used to do Dizzy because they used to draw the levels out and then make little cardboard pieces and then kind of place them on the maps and once they'd done that, they knew the game was complete. Wow. Yeah, so it's all interactive. They've got little QR codes on the pieces. You could put them on a screen and it will come up with like a little clip. It's called Dizzy Vision. And it will come up with clips of old promotions and stuff. And there's hidden little dizzies everywhere with QR codes. That sounds it's amazing. really good. Well, we uh, had them on the show last summer, didn't we? And yeah. you know, at the time they were saying then they never throw anything away. <laughs> it's no, like, no, yeah, this is... <laughs> And uh, luckily, though, they didn't actually throw away the source code to a new Dizzy game. Well, I say new, it was meant to come out 24 years ago. And this was Mystery World Dizzy. Now, a lot of people last week were speculating, you know, is this going to be a new Dizzy game that's going to come out at the, at the event? And it did. It did. It's, it's, it's a new old Dizzy game, if you know what I mean. And they, they store things in box files. You know, the traditional square box file yeah. kind of thing. And they'd taken this one out and they looked at the map and they were like, we've got all the little markers and pieces on this. This means we've completed this game. Yeah. So they'd just forgotten about it in the attic. So they got the disc out, and then the folks at Yoke Folk helped them, because this was yokefolk.com. This was the original source code, but it wasn't compiled or anything. So they helped them compile it and then create an intro for it and you know actually get the game working again. That's pretty amazing because it is a NES game. And in 1993, I imagine by then the NES was kind of fading away and the Super Nintendo was out. Yeah. Maybe that was one of the reasons the game never got released at the time. But this has actually been released on like a proper cartridge with the, the proper artwork and labels and well, all that. Well, they also said it was quite hard with Nintendo at the time because a third-party release on a Nintendo product, you know, it's kind of hard to do compared to a, an original Nintendo one, so there might have been a few issues with that. You know, because everyone thinks of Dizzy as, like, you know, being a Spectrum game, really, and obviously Commodore 64 and stuff it got ported to, but, you know, you kind of forget that there was actually Nintendo games yeah, you know, versions yeah. of Dizzy, which is pretty cool. And this as well, I mean, you know, if you haven't got a, a NES lying around in your attic or you don't want to pay for the cartridge, you can actually play this online for free as well. Oh, yeah, and it's, it's quite nice. It's done in Flash, but um, even to the point that you can select the controller inputs and kind of have a USB controller and then play it wherever you are on the go. Yeah, we were playing it before we started the show. That's yeah. that so like recording this week. <laughs> yeah, but also you can download the ROM there. So if you do have a car, you can mm -hmm. flash it with the updated ROM. Nice. So they keep updating it as well for the NES version. Never thought you'd get that, did you? Real-time digital up upgrades for old NES <laughs> yeah, games. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to play that, we'll of course shove that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, while you're down at the NBA, you actually spoke to a few people, including the Olivers themselves. Yep. Now, uh, we do apologise if you get a little bit of mobile phone interference over the top of this interview. I think I have my audio recorded on my phone a little bit too close. So. <laughs> We're going to try and clean it up, but um, here's a little flavour of the event and uh, the people Ravi spoke to. We'll start with the twins themselves. This is a retro hour and I'm here with the Oliver twins. How are you doing, guys? Uh, very well, thank you. Hi, Ravi. Yes, and this is the 30th 
birthday of Dizzy, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, we're, we're not sure we hear exactly to the day, but within a few weeks, because we, we don't actually have any records of the day that Dizzy released. Uh, we used to master the games, take them to Codemasters, usually drive them up, um, and then a few weeks later we'd see it appear in the shops. So we don't actually have an official day. But, uh, it was around Easter. It was. 1987 is when it first came out. Ace, and you've actually got an exhibition about Dizzy, which is... It's amazing. Awesome. It's, it's awesome. I'm here at the National Video Game Arcade in Nottingham. They've set up a dizzy room. Um, they're using my old bedroom curtains, which and is interesting. And using all the contents of your attic, actually. Yeah, so um, <laughs> they've, got, yeah, they've got everything now. Um, and they've made an amazing display. Uh, it's really good. It's going to be open for at least six months um, here. Um, I think quite a lot longer, because it looks really, really good. And, and they've nice. said that there's, there's only need to replace it when people are not interested in it. Yeah. So just stay interested in it. And as you said there's uh, loads of old items there so uh, yeah. you've even got the old TV that you won. I know that TV's awesome I mean we got it's a monitor in- wherever that is <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we got that we won that in October 83 it did take about six months to turn out for Commodore to send it to us but when it turned up I mean it was a brilliant tool because we were able to plug our spectrum into that um, so that we could see our graphics more clearly when actually developing the games um, and we used it till the well into the 90s yeah uh, not quite PlayStation. But not quite PlayStation. So 94, but, probably, but we stopped using the Super it. Super But it's always still worked. It still works to this day. I mean, is it actually running yeah, up yeah, there? Up, uh, and, and running. Yeah. Yeah. And running. Oh, brilliant. It's, it's running our game. Excellent. Well, uh, last time we spoke to you, you released a book. And yes. Now you have a Kickstarter as well. So, uh, so we released the, the book. The book's um, gone really, really well. I let's mean, Go Dizzy. It, yeah, Let's Go Dizzy, the story of the Oliver Twins. And if you haven't read it, you should. It's awesome. I know I say that, and it sounds like I'm being a salesman, but actually, our money goes to charity anyway. So support charity, for God's sake. <laughs> anyway, um, you actually asked about Kickstarter, so I'm going to return yeah. you to that question. Um, yeah, so we did the Kickstarter book. Obviously, Chris Wilkins has been organising them. He's done a great job of it. Um, we also, at that time... Um, had our rediscovered game that we found in the loft, which was Wonderland Dizzy, and a Kickstarter was done for that, and those cartridges produced and sent out to the backers, and that went very, very well. Um, we also found um, another game whilst we were up there. <clears throat> There's a lot of stuff in my attic. Um, we found Dreamworld Pogi, and um, working with Lukas Kerr in Poland, he managed to recompile that, tidy it up, fix it up. We can only find discs of source code. and Yeah, uh, we can't seem to find final ROMs. Yeah, there was a, a bit f- annoying. It was a little bit broken, but... but Lucas has fixed it. Yeah, and we, we didn't know how the hell to sort of try and get an old NES game working again. It's like just uh, from source. <laughs> yeah, I think you did have a NES in your attic, but it's like, well, how do you plug this into yeah. a PC? A disc, a disc that I can't read, plus a console. <laughs> there's, there's a few bits in the middle that we need fixing. Anyway, Lucas has done an awesome job. So he got Pogi back up and running. There was a successful Kickstarter that was launched uh, here at the NVA in Nottingham back in uh, in December when we did the actual book launch. Um, that um, we had 650 backers, so those cartridges are in production at the moment. In fact, I've just seen a photograph of them this morning showing all the cartridges ready to be sent out, which is awesome. And now uh, <clears throat> we might find another Dizzy game. <clears throat> oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's, it's a funny thing. If you do store everything in your loft and you get into the habit of storing everything, you can never find it. But you do know it's there. Yeah, exactly. Um, I always knew it was there. It was it's one of the things. Stuff. It, it, it got prompted by the start of the book. It was like we, we just made a joke that we've got everything. Um, and it would be good to catalogue it I mean, it, it took three or four months of just, like, every evening and every weekend, going up to the loft, first of all, pulling everything down, putting it all in my conservatory, and then uh, just going through every box file and going, oh, that's interesting, scan it. Oh, that's interesting, that's in 
the wrong box, put that over there, put that over there, put it all in the right order. My loft is now looking very tidy. It's looking a lot emptier now because a lot of it's come along here to the museum. So anyway, the good news is that we did find another finished Dizzy game wow. um, for the NES. It's called Mystery World Dizzy and um, it's now live and you can play it on mysteryworlddizzy.com. You can download the ROM, um, stick it on the emulator if you want, but you can just play it on the website and we are going to do a Kickstarter shortly for real NES cartridges in the full packaging and poster oh, included. fantastic. Um, but we figured we'd get the, the Pogi, Dreamworld Pogi cartridges shipped out to people before we launch another one. So I'm at the National Video Arcade and I've bumped into a retro hour listener. How are you doing? I'm all right, thanks. Yeah, what's your name? Uh, my name's Simon. Simon, and what games have you bought here to get signed by the Oliver Twins? Well, I bought the uh, original copy of Dizzy for the uh, Sedex Spectrum. Um, hoping to get that signed by both of the twins because it's pretty much one of the first games I ever played on the Spectrum back in the day. That along with uh, Treasure Island Dizzy were pretty much like the two games I kept going back to all the time on the Sinclair Spectrum because once you get through the um, the six rubbish Sinclair games that came boxed with yeah. it in the original, it's like... Yeah, and it's that kind of adventure element. You know, you can play it for a very long time. It's uh, got a long life, the Dizzy games. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um back in the days before the internet so you pretty much had to work out how to complete the games on your own or you could look at a magazine like about three or four months down the line when someone's completed it but it was an achievement really to sit through the game and also because you didn't have any save games then so you had to load it up play it through um, in one take true yeah i never thought of that yeah yeah i mean it was even worse with uh, treasure island dizzy because you literally only had one life in the game um so the slightest little mistake i mean you could you could be playing it for like two to three hours and then you just make this the wrong jump off um like a cloud or something where you, you think I'm not sure if this is the right way you jump off and then you land in the lake and drown and that's the <laughs> game over so it was very harsh um, but harsh but worth it definitely worth it because there's just something about the games that you thought oh well you know I've, I've wasted three hours but I'm going to have another go and you kept going at it and eventually you would get further and further and it's just that little achievement every time even for me it was like I'd only have an hour or two hours after school to play on the Spectrum, so the, the race to get it loaded and getting as much time as possible to play the game before my mum literally came and unplugged the Spectrum. It's like, no, that's it, bedtime, should unplug it, and no matter where I was in the game, that was it. So I'm with Stuart Williams from Retro Computer News. How are you doing? Hi there, Ravi. Good to see you in the flesh. Yeah. Are you enjoyed today? It's been a great little event, yeah. Um packed out with really keen people all ages which is very impressive yeah totally and uh, we've also seen another thing today which is the spectrum vega plus well yes it's about rare as hen's tea so it goes in line with the eggs theme for today doesn't it <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> and they've also released a new dizzy game well a new old dizzy game yeah mystery world dizzy found lost in a box of discs up in the attic yeah, it's an amazing story, and that's going to be available to play on the website and also to download as a ROM from today. Yeah, it's all there now, and people can go and have a play with it. Sounds like you had a really good day. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. And there was one thing there that I've never seen before, which was a Vega Plus. A lot of people commenting on our Facebook page now. Just give a little re- dead quick summary of what the Vega Plus is. The Vega Plus is a kind of handheld console, which is backed with... Um, Clive Sinclair Mm -hmm. as well, and the Vega people behind it. But also there's been a hell of a lot of drama and kind of dramatic stuff that we haven't really covered because we've not wanted to. You know, we don't like covering the nasty stuff. A bit too deep as well. It's a bit too (laughs) deep, yeah. So 
kind of, this was a version that was hardware only. It was a prototype. None of the Vega people were there. So we know Jonathan Cordwell, who's one of the Spectrum developers. Yep. And he just turned up with this and he was like, look at this. <laughs> and then there was a few going around and it was really nice. I must say, I, I, I'd kind of had my doubts about this project and everything, but these were prototype versions and they were really solid and robust. They felt like a kind of DS or something like that, you know, that quality build. This is a handheld Spectrum as well. Yeah, 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 and they've got a beautiful little menu within there that means you can change everything. It's got the games list on it. You know, you can you can add custom firmware and stuff in there. You can load games onto it as well, can you? I think you can. Okay. They they did say to me the games list. Don't take a photo of it. That's confidential. Right. And so <laughs> I, I couldn't reveal anything about that. But I'd say there's a little issue, which is the keys on it. They're a little not that responsive, but they're also saying in some of the models they're going to change the membranes, which may help. And I think, because a lot of people have been commenting, oh, there's only four or five. Oh, no, there's only three in existence. I saw about four or five. Just at that event? Well, yeah, because also Jonathan was posting pictures of him with um, ones with blue backs and red backs, which is kind of nice, different coloured ones. And I guess they were at the National Video Game Arcade because the factory is in Beeston. In Nottingham. In Nottingham, where they're building them. So, yeah. But no one was there from the official Vega thing, so we can't give you any dirt on that. We can just talk about the hardware. Well, that's the thing. So you posted a picture of it. I mean, I was, like I said, in Norway, um, and I saw it pop up on our Facebook. The first comment was, it was April Fool's Day last week, lads. You know, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. A lot of people didn't believe this existed at all. They thought it was vaporware or fakes. Yeah, and a lot of people also think this is like free prototypes that have just been sent around. And I want to make it really clear that kind of the prototypes have been sent out to developers. So there is something in motion. So we'll keep you up to date on that. But the, the Vega Plus does exist. Yeah. Ravi's held it in his sweaty hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Haven't ruined it yet. So. And actually, if you want to see, they did actually record um, like the live stream and the video of the um, Oliver Twins talk that they did down there as well, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And of course, the Oliver Twins had Vega Pluses. <laughs> <laughs> of course they did. Yeah. Come on, that goes without saying. So if you want to watch that video, it's about an hour long, actually, isn't it, of the Oliver Twins talking at the NBA? Yeah. Um, we'll put that in the show notes this week at theretrohour.com. Right, then moving on. 21 things we miss about old computers. And this is a list. We do like these kind of list format articles, don't we? Yeah. It gives us something nice to talk about. And this is published on denofgeek.com. And they've actually done like a kind of a tongue-in-cheek list of uh, things that, you know, we miss about old machines, stuff that, you know, maybe we took for granted back then. Some of them I don't necessarily agree with, if I'm honest. First one on the list is loading games off cassette tape. I never did that. You know, I, I was uh, three and a half inch, no, five and a half inch floppies, you yeah. know. You are posh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you know, anyone that owned Commodores and Spectrums back then, you were like an Amstrad PC, didn't you, your first machine? Yeah, yeah. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't the most enjoyable thing in the world, especially when, I mean, you got the kind of, you know, some games were really cool and they give you, like, music when they were loading, you know, some of the really advanced ones, you even got, like, a game to play, yeah. like a pre-game while the, the actual game was loading. But the most annoying thing I remember was when you get multi-part loaders, so, say, for example, it was a pretty big game and the full game wouldn't fit into memory. So you'd finish level one, then it'd have to load the next level. That'd take about 15 minutes. Then if you died, rewind the tape, load it in again. It was like, this is something I'm not nostalgic for. Well, I'd, I'd say I've just, like, had a wave of nostalgia and it was this kind of, um, when I was a kid, I'd stolen a load of my brother's cassettes 
and I, I just to make my own mixtapes. Yeah. And then I put it in, and it kind of. Yeah, data. I was like, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> yeah. What did your brother have? I, I think it was an Atari. Yeah. Okay. Was, yeah. Maybe an Atari four hundred or something like that. So you didn't tape over his games, did you? Uh, yeah, I did a few. <laughs> <laughs> if your brother's listening, then yeah, yeah. can beat Ravi up after the show. <laughs> uh, next one is low-res graphics. Now, I, I kind of do see where they're coming from with this one. Um, it kind of used your imagination a little bit more, I guess, didn't it? Having to kind of work out what it was. And, you know, they're talking here, the original Space Invaders. Um, it was just, you know, essentially it was black and white graphics overlaid, you know, coloured plastic on the screen. But it really got your heartbeat going and stuff like that because, you know, it didn't have to be amazing photorealistic graphics to get your imagination going. Totally. Yeah. So um, agree with that one. Uh, next one. And this, I'd actually completely forgotten about this. And this is something that was so big back in the day that you never see now. High score tables. High score tables, God, yes. The amount of swear words and, <laughs> and, and owners of shops getting really annoyed that some kid put a swear word in and trying to erase it. Yeah, high scores. Oh, God, I'd forgotten about that totally. That was a massive thing, wasn't it? That was yeah. one of the main reasons, wasn't it, to keep pumping money in because, yeah, in your local cheaper, you want to get that swear word at number one. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess the kind of internet leagues are now the high score tables of yeah, but, the uh, future. Do you remember they used to do it in magazines as well? People could write in with their high scores, but... Well, yeah, there's there's a few gaming competitions online, actually, where you do high scores and people submit their results, you know, screenshots of yeah, the yeah. original game. I'm not sure how they verified it back in the day where you had to take a photo with like your mum's Polaroid and or get it sent off to get developed and all yeah. that. Or, but they took your word for it, probably, you know what I mean? Uh, the next one is The Sounds, which um, there's actually a picture in this article of ProTracker. Oh. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we don't need to really say much more on that. You know, no. how, how amazing was like 8 and 16-bit music. Uh, this one as well, which I think, you know, we've talked about this on the show in, you know, over the last year that we've been doing this, learning to program. Mm. Yeah, definitely. But I think that's kind of coming back now, isn't it, with stuff like the Raspberry Pi and... I think people want to see how stuff works more. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's it called now? Recycling's called upscaling. Yeah. And uh, programming's probably got a new fancy name as well, but it's essentially the same. Hackspace, that's it, or yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. something like that. Well, it's a thing, I mean, you know, old machines, they dumped you into BASIC, didn't they? And I yeah. always remember when I first got my Amiga after my Plus 4, I was like, well, where's the programming language? You know what I mean? It was like, it was, it was actually a bit of a shock. You had to go and buy it separately. I was like, what's this? God, I remember uh, my friend, uh, you know, we'd be on the Amiga and it'd be all gooey. Yeah. And then I went onto his PC and it was DOS. I was like, well, we have to type in commands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Didn't know how lucky we had it, did we, later yeah. on? Uh, and the last one on the list, uh, which I know will resonate with you, Ravi, Playground Piracy. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> uh, <it> still continue. <laughs> You're a good boy these days. Yeah, I'm a good right? boy. I'm a good boy. I use a VPN. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, back in the day, I remember you know, being the coolest kid at school because I had, you know, certain games before anybody else. I think I mentioned on the show before that my uncle actually had a, a guy he worked with who would call up all those dodgy bulletin boards in Sweden and Finland and all that. And, you know, my uncle would give him a fiver and uh, we'd get the latest discs, you know, hot off the press, as it were. Well, yeah, with me, it was different waves. So it was like, you know, first we'd do floppy disk and then the PlayStation came out. So it was all CD-ROMs and then... HTTP came out, so it was all <laughs> Google briefcases and all of this, and then Napster came out, and it was just, <laughs> yeah, you know... Napster, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, we're not saying it's big or clever, but, you know, a lot, no, of, no. A lot of us did it back in the day. But I think, you know, they do make a good point in this article that these days, 
it's a lot easier to pay for stuff. Obviously, you know, we've got a bit more money now, we're adults. Uh, but also, you know, cause thanks to stuff like the indie scene, there is affordable games that you can get for like, you know, a Totally. Of like, I used to absolutely hate Steam mm-hmm. when I was younger. I was like, why are you guys paying for games? You know, you can download them all. But if I look at my Steam library now, it's massive. Yeah. And that's because of stuff like bundles and discounts and, you know, kind of the wish list where it'll pop up and say, oh, this special's on sale. And, and affordable price is not like taking the mickey, isn't it? It's, yeah, uh, totally. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, if you want to see this list, uh, there's 21 of them. We'll shove those in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, speaking of Steam, um, a new old game that is coming to Steam. And uh, this was, obviously, we've, uh, you know, had Mike Montgomery from the Bitmaps on the show before. Oh, yeah. A Bitmap Brothers classic is coming back for the 21st century. Now, if I play the theme music, you might recognise it. Oh, yes. Okay, so do you know much about this tune? I know, I loved it. Yeah. Go on, give us a story there. So, so this is um, Nation 12, okay. which was a group with John Fox. And John Fox was from Ultravox. Oh, by Vienna. Yeah, oh, but but he actually left before Vienna, so he was on, he was on an ultra Just before that big hit. Yeah, yeah, basically. So he was kind of like, you know, the the guy who didn't make it, but he was like the poor man's Gary Newman. Right. That's what they'd say. But okay. he did Gods, and he did a whole album, and it was called Nation 12. That was a little group, and they did dual releases where they released Amiga songs and vinyl okay so you can get this nation 12 album that's all kind of gods and stuff like that well it's speedball 2 yeah he did that as well so. oh that was great music on that as yeah, well yeah yeah but the thing is with uh you know i, I think yeah, i would load that game up and just you know listen to the intro music while yeah yeah just bouncing around yeah because so it was it was actual like a, a, a commercial release that quality yeah, yeah it was awesome well gods is a game that's getting a remake an hd upgrade now this is um in cooperation with mike montgomery um, of course, one of the original Bitmap Brothers, one of the founders, and a team called Sound of Games. Now, obviously, it came out on the Amiga, the Atari ST. I think it was a DOS version of it as well back in mm-hmm. the day. And uh, this is going to be coming out in the third quarter of 2017, um, as you'd expect from you know an HD upgrade. I think they've actually done a good balance between remaining faithful to the original game, but also giving it kind of you know really smooth, high resolution look as well. Um, you've watched a trailer, haven't, haven't you? That I posted before. Yeah, yeah, and it's I, I kind of like the chucking. That's what I've always liked in that game. So when you're chucking the knives in the way, yeah, the, and the, the movement the movement's right. kept. Yeah, exactly the same. That's good. The graphics, they they seem okay, but you've got to remember this is a early version, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I've been chatting to the guys on Facebook, and they said this is still a work in progress. You know, stuff can change because they have had some people criticising them. I think unfairly though, because some people are saying like, you know. The graphics are not that great, but then again, they're trying to bring a 16-bit game into the mm. modern world. If you change it too much, it loses everything that made the original game, you know, memorable. Because I've seen a lot of remakes, like the Agony remake as well, and stuff, and that was of a similar kind of ilk. The graphics looked very similar. Yeah, well, it's kind of got, you know, it's really nicely uh, textured 3D, proper lighting and effects mm. and that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, dynamic of lighting and stuff like that. Um, and there is going to be a mobile version. I think the video, you know, we'll put this trailer in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Um, it's actually a mobile version that they're showing in the video. So. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. And that, that changes things a lot. If that's a mobile version, that would look a lot better. I was thinking this was for the main PC one, but if they've got mobile, wow. Now, now they're saying the PC version is going to be even more enhanced. So, you know, oh, wow. It should have yeah. got shinier. Uh, hopefully it'll get console releases as well. I know at the moment it's PC on Steam and mobile they're talking about. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we'll keep you up to date with this. I think it's always cool when classic games get, you know, a remake for the oh, 21st yeah. century. And Gods was really good. I love that game. 
it was one of those games where it was pretty simplistic, really. It was just like a side-scrolling platformer, really, wasn't it? But it was the atmosphere of the game I liked. Yeah, I like the sound effects as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. <laughs> that is one point as well. I hope they do like a modern version of the theme tune. Oh, yeah. That, that's got to be done. They can't have a total different tune. Yeah, get John Fox back on it. Yeah, yeah. If you need hooking up, Ravi can, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. John Fox and the Maths. That's his new band. <laughs> so thank you for checking out episode number 66 of the Retro Hour podcast. Uh, there is still time as well to vote for us in the British Podcast Awards. It's getting very close now, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And we've got to beat Edith Bowman. So guys, <laughs> yeah. Not literally, of course. <laughs> That'd be awful. If we make the headlines the next day, it wasn't us. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, of course, if you do want to vote for us, guys, we appreciate this. We're up for, uh, well, we put ourselves in the nominations for the Listener's Choice Award. I think this is all based on numbers as well, isn't it? And like we said yeah. last week, if everyone who listened to this voted for us, we'd have a good chance of making the top ten, I think. Yeah, definitely. So just head to the retrohour.com forward slash vote and type in the Retro Hour. That's it. Take you five it. seconds. Yeah. So thanks for checking out this week's show. We'll be out again next Friday. Uh, your little treat before the weekend. Have an amazing Easter Bank Holiday weekend if you're celebrating that this weekend. And now we're going to get seriously nostalgic for the 8-Bit Days with this week's special guest, the fantastic John Rittman. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and let's get on this week's special guest. Joining us on the phone right now, John Rittman. Thanks for coming on. No problem. Now, um, we're going to get some amazing stories, I'm sure, from your uh, you know, many years developing video games, but I thought it would be really interesting to start your story right at the beginning. So, do you remember the first time you ever experienced a computer or a game then? What's your earliest memory? Uh, of a computer? Oh, um, that would be when I was 15... And I was visiting my brother in Brussels, and he worked for uh, Singer, the sewing machine people. Right. And was their head of computing. I was just a kid. He's quite a lot older than me. Uh, and um, there was this huge room full of giant Winchester discs and reel-to-reel spinning stuff. And all I can remember was he... He said to me, um, show me a keyboard and said, type anything you want. Um, and so, you know, not really knowing what to type, I typed my name. And suddenly this enormous metre-wide line printer word into action and started spewing paper. And my brother's yelling, what have you done? What have you done? <laughs> I told him I'd type my name in. And he said, oh, I named a programme after you. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd loaded this programme up then, inadvertently? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so did that kind of capture your imagination then, um, you know, using that machine? No, not really. It was just just a, w- a weird thing that happens. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you eventually get into, like, computers at home then? And what was your first system? Right, so... So when I became a grown-up, uh, I was working for Radio Rentals, the uh, TV rental company, and was a television engineer. Um, and they, this was 1980-81, um, we just got our first video recorders in, um, and they started talking about renting out computers. Uh, they were talking about the Atari at the time, I can't remember which one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd already noted that the people who'd been on special courses to learn how to repair the video recorders were earning more than me. Uh, and I thought, maybe I should learn about these computers before we get them in. 
so I went and bought a ZX81, which was just being released at that moment. Uh, and so that was my first computer. I um, hear you kind of lived inside the ZX81 manual for quite a while. It was a strange thing for me because, uh, you know, it, it's great, it was a great manual. I mean, I, I put down my career to the people that wrote that manual because it was so easy to grasp. Uh, and I taught myself basic inside a week. I mean, I went right the way through the manual in a week. You know, that's after work, so each evening. Uh, and at the end of that, I, I thought... Okay, what's next? Uh, machine code. And went out and bought my first book on machine code. So that was after having it a week. Uh, there was a, a fellow engineer at Radio Rentals who'd bought um, a Commodore PET. And he'd learned almost nothing. Uh, and, and when he showed me the manual, I could see why. Yeah. I mean, it really didn't make any attempt to teach it. So what kind of stuff were you doing on your ZX81 then? Was it mainly programming that you did on, the, on it? I mean, that's all I did. I just taught myself to program. It was just a fun thing to learn to do. Uh, and, and being an engineer, an electronics engineer, it, the, the mindset is very similar, particularly when it comes to finding uh, errors in your program. Mm. You know, when, when you're mending a television, you're basically saying, I've got a signal coming in through the aerial wire and I've got a picture on the front of the screen. And if there isn't a picture on the front of the screen, there is somewhere between the two, there is a fault. And, and basically, the smart way to, to find it is to do a binary search where you, you go halfway through the process. And you, is it working up to here? Then you know which half it's working on. And you do it again. You go halfway in and you keep doing that until you find it. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what you do when you're debugging the program. So what kind of programs were you writing then? Was it like uh, games? Was it applications? What kind of stuff? I should, I should go back a bit. Not only had I, uh, that I should learn about computers for my job, but I was also tried to justify how I was going to use the computer because it was quite a lot of money. It was a week's wages. So I remember writing a list which had things like keep a list of my albums on it and things like that. All never actually happened. Uh, and, and by the time I got to Machine Cut, I thought, oh, what else can I do? I suppose I'll write a game. So um, what was your kind of first title that you um, started working on? Uh, well, it ended up being called Named Here Raiders. I had no idea that assemblers existed. Um, I was literally doing it by hand, uh, writing it down on sheets of paper, uh, converting it to hex, working out all the jumps that had to be made and the addresses. It was incredibly laborious. And I'd been doing it for, oh, I don't know how long, several weeks. And then I, some magazine uh, advertised an assembler. I was like, oh, never heard of these before. <laughs> that sounds a good idea. So I went out and bought one and carried on with that. But, uh, it, you know, I had to start again, basically, and, and just type it all in as... as uh, mnemonics rather than hex uh, and um, Nancy Raiders was born about two months later. How did that game kind of get attention then? I, I just sent it off to, to three companies as I remember one of them was Arctic, they came back to me pretty much immediately within two days um, and offered me a silly amount of money for it which I stupidly accepted. And a kind of theme that you had with your games like I noticed you went to 3D Combat Zone after that and it was this kind of early attempts at 3D? It was really a case... Look, I wasn't being very clever on my first few games. I wasn't being 
uh, creative. I was simply copying things I'd seen. And, you know, happy that I was actually capable of doing that. Uh, so one of our... We had a, a local burger bar near my house, and when myself and friends got together, uh, invariably somebody would wander off to the burger bar at some point with a big order, and they had a Battlezone machine there. Uh, so we all all played it, um, and, and, you know, I, I love Battlezone. I played it recently at a, a retro event, and somebody had an original machine there, and it's great. Uh, so I wanted to make it, and it was something to learn uh, because I didn't even pass my maths A level. So training myself to uh, do 3D maths was an interesting adventure. Well, you mentioned arcades there. I mean, you know, Battlezone's one of those games that has, has held up really well, you know, from the old days. I mean, were there any other, like, arcades or games that you played at home that influenced you in the early days? Seeing, you know, certainly seeing Ultimate uh, early products had an influence on me. I wanted... You know, after I saw Jetpack, and, and uh, I, I just wanted to go for something a bit more colourful, and, and that's why, you know, I ended up doing Bear Bother. That was quite an interesting concept as well, because um, it was kind oh. of a, an electric car, wasn't it? And you had to go round and collect all the batteries. Yeah, but it was stolen again. It was Burger Time, uh, Mattel's Burger Time, uh, which I'd seen at work on the Atari. And uh, I kind of stole the concept and Clive Sinclair was talking about electric cars at the time and I thought, let's tie the two together. Well, well, that's come around now. It could probably be a Tesla or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, still uh, slightly more creative in that I was doing uh, things that, that weren't exact copies, um, but I still wasn't there in making my own mark on, on invention. I think that was very common around that time, though, wasn't it? The people would, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, people would make various clones of Pac-Man and just call it something slightly different. I mean, no one really caught on to the fact, you know, of copyright really all that much back then, did they? They didn't, no. Uh, it was quite funny to watch the, the gradual change. And uh, I particularly noticed it oh, many, many years later when uh, late 90s in a, a soccer game and and suddenly everybody was really paranoid about using names, of what you named the players. People wanted a signed bit of paper saying you could use a particular name, which, you know, you weren't going to get from a top professional footballer without paying him a load of money, uh, which is why one of my soccer games went out in the 90s with the centre-forward of Brazil as John Whitman. Even on Bear Booth, the song was Teddy Bear's uh, Picnic, so you kind of used a <laughs> semi-copyrighted yeah. thing. I don't know if it was copyrighted or not by then. I might have been out of date. Yeah, that was an interesting use. And I always remember kind of hearing little tunes in Spectrum and C64 games that would, uh, you know, kind of be very similar. Well, I guess nursery rhymes you probably could use without any fear of that, couldn't you? Yeah, she probably could. I mean, you know, they do run out. But, hey, it was only quite recently. Happy Birthday came out. Yeah, last year or something, wasn't it? Last year or something, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that. Well, moving on to match day, I mean, um, why did you decide to go with, like, an isometric side view for that game? Uh, oh, simply because, it, it, you know, I'd seen uh, international soccer on the Commodore in shop windows. I could see how it worked, you know, it gave you uh, something that was feasible to do on a pretty slow computer and um, allowed you to see, to some extent, in 3D in terms of knowing where the ball was in height and where it was on the pitch, you know, with... 
by putting a shadow on the pitch, uh, you, you've got a lot of visual information about where the ball was going. Uh, and that just worked for me. Well, I remember seeing international soccer. I mean, it was pretty groundbreaking when that game came out, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was in, you know, every shot window. And, and basically what happened was I went to a fair and went round and talked to the distributors uh, and they were all saying they wanted international soccer on the spectrum mm-hmm. or something like that. I very deliberately never played it um, until after I'd finished match day because I, I didn't want to do an exact copy. I remember that was the one game that everybody always had on cartridge on the Commodore 64 for some reason. Well, it was, I, there were huge adverts. I, mean, I can remember 40-foot posters up, a, yeah. up in the street. You know, they really pushed it. I heard that you actually reused some of the Bear Bother sprites in that game too. Uh, kind of, yeah. <laughs> started, started, you know, changed them a bit, but yeah. I mean, I wasn't a great graphic artist, um, and it probably showed. And the thing was that the, the Bear Bother ones have been done very carefully to try and avoid colour clash, uh, which, of course, didn't really matter on, on uh, match day because you were only using a couple of colours. But on, on Bear Bother, there were, particularly when you're climbing ladders, that was a real problem of, of, of how to avoid the colour clash. Uh, and so, so their movement was, was very controlled around that. Uh, so as they climbed the ladder, basically only their arms would move and then their body would move very suddenly uh, to get the animation smooth with the colour. Well, um, you also had some, as you mentioned, team names. You had some quite creative ones there. I think there was an ocean team. It was, uh, yeah, we, I, I just used friends, uh, you know, Kev's Cosmos and such like, Rickman Rovers was there. Nice. And uh, your game was also included in a 1986 compilation. Um, they sold a million too. Did that kind of help spread it and uh, establish your Oh, rep? yeah. Oh, God. We, I mean, we sold a lot of, of it just on its own, and then pretty much the same again on They Sold a Million, which, of course, they hadn't. That was just a name. Uh, so I, probably with the two together, it was in excess of 100,000, which for those days was very good. Well, I remember playing um, Batman, and that was obviously an isometric game as well. Um, was that kind of an officially licensed game, I take it, then? I mean, how did you get the license for that? Right, story behind Batman. So basically, I handed over Match Day to David Ward Ocean, uh, the, the final copy. Immediately afterwards, he passed me the game and said, you need to look at this. And it was Nylor. And I went round to uh, some friend's house round the corner from Ocean, and we put it on, and they were in the games industry too, and, you know, multiple jewels hit the floor. Uh, wow. That, you know, it was what I'd always wanted, a, a Disney film that you could play. Mm. Uh, that's, that's how I saw it. Uh, and so I immediately started uh, trying to work out how it was done and did work that out. Um, and I, I'd got, you know, I knew my artwork wasn't up to it. Uh, so I got um, uh, Bernie Rounds, who was a, a friend who doodled all the time, uh, you know, just like all the time, and, and sat him in front of the computer and found he could do it and then sat down with him one day and said look we need to hang this on something uh, something to give it some some a name that people already recognize and i was going through things like uh, the greek gods and norse gods things like that and 
then I thought of Batman and immediately dismissed it because it, for me, Batman was the 60s uh, series, uh, which, of course, was quite a long time before. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and I said, oh, nobody will remember that. And, and Bernie immediately piped up, oh, yeah, it's been re-shown on Channel 4. All the kids are watching it. Um, Bernie used to play football with like, a bunch of kids over his local park uh, pretty much every day. Um, so he knew this. Uh, so, I, you know, I, he, he knocked up a graphic, uh, a, a simple animation. I took it out to Manchester and showed David Ward and they just said, yeah, we'll sort out the licence. And they did. And that was it. And, we, and DC Comics had virtually no input into the game at all. One thing that in the in the final blurb, um, which I'd knocked up in 20 minutes when I'd finished the game, I'd called the power-ups uh, bat pills, and they objected to that because uh, Batman doesn't take drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we changed it to bat powers, and they were quite happy. Well, obviously, I mean, you were kind of a couple of years ahead of the curve because, you know, like, what was that, 86 that came out, didn't it? So, I mean, 89, you know, obviously the Michael Keaton movie came out and Batman was like the biggest thing in the world, wasn't it, just a few years after? Absolutely, yeah. I think so. We were, we were running off the 60s for a dodgy series and uh, then it took off after that. <laughs> yeah, I bet it would have been more expensive to license in 89 than 86. Just a bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that was amazing about that game, I mean, you know, it had a fully isometric 3D world, which, you know... Doing that on the spectrum, was that quite a challenge? Yes, I, I suppose it was. Um, it was just something, a bit of programming. Uh, every bit of programming at that time was a challenge. You know, every day I was doing stuff that there was a large chance that nobody in humanity had ever done before in the history of mankind. Because mm -hmm. that's where we were, at the forefront of invention. We were constantly trying to come up with new ways of doing things and having to make them up as we went along. Everything you did was pushing limits and, and doing things that you weren't meant to do. A classic would be something that would have been highly frowned upon in the professional programming world, and that's self-modifying code, where the code modifies itself to run differently. And yet, if I could squeeze a few more cycles out of that, uh, I wouldn't hesitate to do it. Well, you also created kind of a... A, a checkpoint system or a system where you wouldn't, you know, go all the way to the beginning of the game and have to start again. And that was fairly innovative for the time. Um, yeah, I suppose it was. Um, didn't, did Match Day 1 have something like that? I can't remember. Did Match Day 1 have a code entry? I know Match Day 2 did. Just I, the idea that you, you could, you know, not have to go all the way back. Too big a game for that. The game was very successful because it got to number two in the charts. That must have been something you're really proud of, was it? Yeah, I mean, there was a bit of luck. Um, I was of the opinion that a game was finished when it was finished, not when some artificial deadline was made. Uh, so I didn't do deadlines. Uh, and and I, it, that I had in common with Ultima. Uh, they likewise have the same opinion. And as such, I had a bad bit of missing Christmas, which, of course, everybody wanted to get a game out for. So the result is I would probably hit Easter, and that actually proved quite advantageous because nobody else was aiming for Easter. In addition, nearly every artist on the magazines had probably grown up drawing things like Batman. And so when Batman was released, I walked into my local 
Smiths to see a whole row of magazines with Batman all over the cover. Because uh, every artist thought, oh, wow, I can draw Batman for the cover. You know, waiting for those magazines' reviews of your games, then, was that quite a nerve-wracking experience, like going into WH Smiths and then, you know, flicking to the, the page? I, <laughs> I used to use it. <laughs> funny, you know, sometimes I put things off. One of my putting off procedures was to go to the, down to uh, Wood Green in North London uh, pick up some magazines. And it was just a way of avoiding doing any work, really. Uh, and then I'd go home and read them. And yeah, you know, it was, it, most of my reviews at that time were really good. So it was disappointing if I got a poor one. Uh, but they were never that bad. Well, uh, the next game that you created was Head Over Heels. And did that use the same engine as Batman or did you kind of improve it? It used almost the same engine. I basically did a load of work while putting off the one thing that I knew had to be done because I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do it. And that's the ability to to maintain, in effect, two rooms. Because if you think in, in Batman, the room is stored in a very tight fashion in memory. Uh, and then when you actually go into the room, that, that room is expanded... Uh, in memory, and then you can start moving things around. But if you leave the room, you don't store where everything has moved to. If you go back in there, it's all returned to its starting place as it re-expands the tight memory version of it. So in Head Over Heels, I had to keep rooms when you weren't in them because if if you swapped between head and heels, you had to maintain the other room. So I just kept putting that off because I wasn't sure how to do it. And in the end, there was nothing else to do in the programming side before I started creating the map, apart from that. So I had to, you know, force myself to do it. And it must have taken me all of 40 minutes. Oh, wow. Because that's that's (laughs) a really innovative concept, the kind of way that you can control two elements in the same space. And uh... I know it was hailed as as something really different. And and the funny thing is, I didn't think of it as that. I, I thought of it in an entirely different way. In Batman, for instance, I thought that you need to get. Um, it, it, it's great to earn abilities when you're playing a game. To to start off with some something that's relatively ineffective and then to gain the ability to do something is is something that every game player enjoys. So what I did in Batman was decide everything that I wanted Batman to do and then I took a load of them away. So when you first got Batman, he couldn't jump. He couldn't, you know, he couldn't carry things. You had to find something and that earned you that ability. And as far as I was concerned, splitting the making two players was exactly the same thing. It was just one more step in that, in that, you know, the final version would be to join the two players together and then you had all the abilities in one place. Uh, So that's how I saw it. Uh, And I didn't really think of it as something particularly innovative, um, but other people did. I suppose it was, but I wasn't thinking that at the time. Oh, and it was a massive game as well. You know, you had 300 rooms in there. It was uh, there was a lot of quite clever uh, compression in the in the way the map was stored. 
Um, I believe the average uh, space for a room going for I don't know, 301 rooms uh, was 17 bytes. Think of today's web pages and how many web pages you could store in 17 bytes. It's not even a button, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, in that game, I mean, um, a robot controlled by push switches had um, quite a resemblance to Prince Charles with a Dalek's head on, I used to read at the time. I mean, oh, oh, Although Bernie, who drew it, says it was actually a pug from the Bastionary Kids. <laughs> did you get any stick for that at the time then, or uh, did it cause much controversy? Do you know, I have seen a, a... I mean, if you search around on the internet, you'll find it. There is a, a serious bit of university work... Uh, about all the connotations of uh, head over heels and, you know, the comments on the English monarchy. It's written by somebody Dutch, I believe, but in a university as a serious bit of work. Wow. So much bullshit. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, were you a fan of, like, Monty Python or, like, surrealism or did you just, in, you know, enjoy making kind of out-there kind of things? Like stairs made of dogs and stuff like that. <laughs> Well, you know, my, my instructions to Bernie for graphics were draw me something that looks fantastic. And we soon realised that you couldn't, it, you know, with pixels the size they were on the spectrum, you couldn't keep things in scale and have them look fantastic. You know, you just can't. So having a cup of tea that's half the size of Batman was acceptable to me because it just looked great uh, and and yeah that made it quite surreal but what the hell it's a game yeah totally and uh you also port it was ported to a lot of systems did you have any hand in the porting oh yeah um the thing was when match day one was released ocean got a version of it made on the amstrad by some company and i i had this horrific memory of phoning them up and going do you understand how the effect on the ball that the direction the men are running has when it hits them? Um, and their answer was, we don't really care, mate, we're just doing this job. And I just thought, oh, all the care I put into thinking about that and planning it, and you're just blowing it out the window. And, of course, their version was crap. And I just thought, that's never happening again. Um, I want complete control over every version that's ever made any of my games and so all of those Z80 games I wrote myself um, and the 6502 versions were done with line by line conversions with me involved throughout so somebody else would do the conversion but they'd be on the phone to me all the time uh, and you know we'd debug together where I was looking at the Z80 codes and they were looking at the 6502 codes to make sure they behaved in the same way I imagine you did quite a lot of bug testing, but there was was one bug that made it through in that game. In Head Over Hills, yes, there was a bug, yeah. Um, I, nobody ever noticed it uh, until a mate of mine came round and he said, can I play it? And I said, sure, I'm just going down to a newsagent to get something. I can't remember what newsagent was only about 20 yards away. When I come back, the game was frozen. I'm like, what the hell did you do? And, uh, you played it again and it happened again. <laughs> I was just like, oh, wow. Uh, and then I looked at the code and I could see what had happened, um, but nobody ever reported it apart from that. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's not like today you can just push an update, is it? You know, once it's out there, it's out there. Yeah, it was just this, uh, you know, so strange thing that I'd overlooked where if you went 
into a room and then swapped the other character and he went into a room and then you went swapped back and the guy died. So it was something like that that it, it could lock up. Oh, well, at least we didn't get any complaints. Well, that game, obviously, I mean, it got, like, um, some really good scores in the magazines. Like, 97%, I think, they got in Crash magazine, which, you know, was ridiculously high in the magazine, wasn't it? Yeah, I was quite pleased with that. Even even better was having the Head Over Hills Batman and Match Day 2 in the chart, in their Crash Readers chart, simultaneously in the top 10. I like Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so the next game you moved on to was Match Day 2. Did you feel you kind of had to improve the Match Day series? Or? Yeah, Match Day 2, well... Uh, I knew it could be done better, and I, I enjoyed doing it, and I enjoyed playing match day. Uh, so thought I'd have another go. Better graphics, uh, Bernie doing the graphics, better gameplay, um, more variety, more competition options. Uh, you know, in, in particular, things like uh, collision detection. You know, uh, match day one was the first time I'd really had to deal with collision detection where it affected something. You know, it's very different from shooting uh, a bullet at something and it exploding when it hit something. To have the ball react when it hit a player was a very different sort of collision detection. And, and you know, I had to understand what the player was doing uh, as well as the ball. And, and I knew that I could improve greatly on what I had. And I, and I thought... You know, if you play football, people use their bodies. You know, if a ball's coming in at chest height, uh, you you kind of pull back from it to to, to stun it, uh, to try to try and get control over it so it doesn't bounce off too fast. Uh, alternatively, if you're going in with your head, you're probably going towards it to try and get you know the maximum velocity off you. Uh, and and I wanted to bring that into the game, uh, and and. Well, that's what I did. You had the first uh, kind of kickometer as well, or like you know power bar on yeah. when you kicked. Yeah, that was a interesting idea. When it, why did you come up with that? Well, I just wanted more variety. I mean, you know, and I realised that it could overcomplicate things, and hence the reasons that the, the front end allowed you to set precisely what you wanted the, the meter to do. You know, what, what kicks you wanted available. Uh, and, and uh, you know, allowed the player to set that up. And it was quite fun being able to do back heels and things like that. Well, how did you figure out the um, the AI for Match Day 2 then? Because, I mean, that was massively improved over the original, wasn't it? Um, yeah, would have been. Um, I should explain, the ma- on, on Match Day 1, I didn't have the faintest idea how to do AI. I mean, I really didn't. So I basically finished the game in terms of being able to play a match and had no AI at all. And it was terrifying me. Uh, you know, I just did not know what to do. And, and you know, finally I get once again to that stage where there's nothing else to do and I have to face it. Uh, and so I got all the stuff that you could play, human to human. So, you know, players would run around into position, which was, I suppose you could call that AI, but... That would be stretching the point. Um, and I thought, okay, now I have to write something where they actually are controlling the joystick, in effect. The computer is controlling the joystick. And I started at the simplest level where I put a bit of code that said, "Are you contr- have you got the ball? 
If you haven't got the ball, run towards it. If you have got the ball, kick it up the field. That was the first bit of AI I ever wrote. And I, start, I stuck it in, in the programme. It must have been about 10 lines of code. Um, and it scored against me in about 30 seconds. Hmm. And I simultaneously laughed and cried for about half an hour. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was absolutely fantastic. Um, and, it, you know, needless to say, by the time I did the second one, I was getting a bit more sophisticated. Well, that's why they said it was a, you know, really kind of addictive game because it was quite hard to play against the AI. You know, it's a challenge. Well, it's a bit of a challenge. <laughs> Depends how well you know it, doesn't it? I think I'm, I think my record was about twenty-two nil or something. <laughs> I mean, obviously, that was very well received as well. I, I now recall it got to um, number two in the charts, just behind Outrun, which obviously was a massive game, wasn't it? Uh, it was, yeah, uh, yeah, it did very well. Um, I was very pleased with that. There is a, a slight story on that in that um, the guy that did the cover art, uh, Bob Wakelin at, at Ocean, uh, his way of, of doing art was he'd often find a photograph and then paint over it. That's what he'd done for match day. So when I was on my way back from Manchester, having delivered the the final copy of match day two, um, I went to Ludlow to crash uh, and went to show them the game uh, and walked into the office and they said, oh, we've we just had another game out, um, another football game. It's nowhere near as good as this, but um, here, come, come and look. And uh, they took me around the corner and there was a poster hanging on the wall for it, Gary Lineker's Superstar Soccer. Yeah. And blow me down if it wasn't the same picture. And he just, he just kind of painted it then, I think. He'd, he'd got a picture of Gary Lineker and he painted over it and it was the same <laughs> bloody picture. And nobody ever noticed and I just kept my mouth shut. <laughs> I don't blame you. That could have caused some confusion on the shop shelves, couldn't it? Just a little, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there have been some like kind of classic games like kickoffs being kind of brought into the new era recently. Um, I know Dino's like updated that. I mean, are there any plans to ever bring back the, um, you know, do like an HD update of Match Day? No, I don't think so. I tell you what, we did we did a version of Match Day three in '97, yeah, which then for various really stupid reasons we got renamed, uh, and it was at a time when uh, you know FIFA and its ilk ruled the roost. Obviously, they're very different sorts of games. And I'll take you way back to the first ever FIFA. I went into a shop to uh, just have a chat into a computer game shop. Um, the guys there knew me and I said, oh, we've got this new game in. And so they put it on for me and I started playing it. And I thought, there's something weird about this. Uh, and and I, I felt like it, I was doing too well, you know, considering it was my first game. Mm-hmm. And, and so I shut my eyes, and I scored. I thought, <laughs> okay, so I'm not actually playing this. He's playing it for me. Uh, and and that's the way that the football games have changed. Hmm. Now, I wanted a game that I controlled. Um, but, you know, that when I was successful, it was because I'd made it happen. I had a learning curve. You know, it took you a long time before you were going to score with an overhead kick as an example um, and and that's the sort of game I would create and the soccer game sort of went the other way they were just play, you know hence pass buttons whereas I was putting a ball into space and having players run into run onto it 
it was just passing to somebody. They weren't even really controlling hope. Uh, and, and the journalists, by the time the, the match day three game was released, the journalists were used to that, and they couldn't be bothered to learn. And so uh, most of the reviews were pretty naff. And I thought, OK, so that, that has changed. Uh, and, and probably not an area I want to play in anymore. Yeah, so FIFA these days, you know, you can just by button mashing, you can you can play it, can't you, really? Yeah, yeah, I've stopped playing it. When did you um, eventually get out the Spectrum scene then? What made you kind of quit working on the Spectrum? Well, I saw a big interview with um, Chris and Tim Stanker uh, from Ultima, and um, they were looking for people to work at Rare. And I just thought I'd be quite interested in doing some work with them. I, you know, I had an enormous amount of respect for them. I'd never met them because um, they didn't really talk to the press much and, and get out there at shows or anything like that. So I uh, gave Crash a ring, I think, and just said, can you get me their number? Um, and uh, they did. And I went to visit them. And then I worked with them for a few years. Uh, things like Donkey Kong Country and everything like that were written on my dev tools, uh, uh, assembler, monitor, debugger, and, and did the uh, game on the Game Boy. Is that Monster Max? Yeah. Yeah. Well, your, your isometric format fitted in really well on that game, didn't it? Into the handheld it did work quite, I thought it worked quite well on the, on the Game Boy, actually. I think it was quite nice. And, and uh, you know, it got, it got some tremendous reviews, but uh, unfortunately the company that was marketing it Failed to get it onto the shelves, and at the same time as reviews by a factor of about ten months. Um, you were offered to have it published by Nintendo at one point, weren't you? Only if I changed all the characters um, to Nintendo style. Had I known what I know now, I would have jumped at it. It was it Titus who published it, wasn't it? Yeah, and uh, no, that, that was with Rare as well. So, kind of, what was it like meeting up with Rare in those uh, early days? Oh God, I loved working with Rare. It was it was great. I mean, I got on with I know, most of my dealings with with Chris Stamper. I got on with him like house on fire. Um, you know, we would frequently be chatting at three a.m. Uh, for an hour or so because <laughs> uh, we both worked through the night. Uh, yeah, really really good fun. It was great. You know, doing games for the Game Boy, I mean, obviously that used a Z80 as well. I mean, did you kind of use, like, a lot of your knowledge from the Spectrum on that? A castrated Z80. A castrated Z80, not a Z80. <laughs> Cut that. You know, and both its balls chopped off and a fair bit more. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you had to do all sorts of different things. No, it was a... Why they couldn't have just used a Z80 is beyond me. But... That's Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> was it a frustrating platform to work on then, was it, that I take it? Well, a little bit. Um, I, I mean, I, I had the advantage that I'd written, written my development platform by then. So uh, that was the first uh, game I'd done with it, and that was in itself a revelation. Um, I could do things with that dev kit that i have never been able to do before, and it made writing a game far, far easier. Well, looking back on those days, I mean, would would you say you had like one machine that was kind of your favourite of like you know the maybe the eighties or the eight bit generation? Oh, I'm just going to say the Spectrum simply because it was you know the first one and it was such an adventurous time. You know, it was it was a bundle of fun to just sit down and and just go watch I make today that nobody else has done. 
Were you involved with the PC remake of Head Over Heels? Oh, uh, yeah. So that was just, somebody made it. Um, it wasn't anything to do with me. They did send me a copy. They had, unfortunately, decided to do something because they thought it would be easier and it um, made a lot of the puzzles not work properly because basically the walls weren't in the same place as they were in the original game. They were further out. So they were kind of outside the doors rather than inside the doors. And, and some of the puzzles actually relied on them being in the right place. Uh, so the same puzzles, but a different layout. So it was let down a bit by that. Uh, the, the guys that did it recognised it after they'd finished, that that was an error on their part. Did they not ask you to get involved then at the development stage? No, and I wouldn't have been interested. I mean, you know, I, well, it was a great time, but I was also, that was my job. Mm-hmm. I was making money out of it. You know, these guys were doing it for fun. And, you know, Head Over Heels was a year's work. I'm, I'm not going to put that sort of effort into something that's not going to pay its way. Well, is there any old um, games that you would, like, consider revisiting again or updating? Well, if somebody came along with the right offer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I t- I, the retro scene... It's fun, but for people to, you know, put their working lives into it, um, it's got to pay because, you know, there are always bills to be paid. Somebody's got to pay for my electricity and gas. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I don't, the retro scene doesn't really pay anybody. So um, yeah. what, what are you up to nowadays? <laughs> Today, uh, making curtains. Nice. Quite a change, yeah. <laughs> we recently moved, so there's a lot of uh, renovation going on. You are still coding. You did like an iPhone game recently, didn't you? I looked at one. I never completed it. So that just kind of got left by the wayside. Um, I'm not working on the games at the moment. I mean, I program simply because I can, and sometimes it's just the easiest way to work something out. Um, you know, I've got... For instance, I have to... Um, uh, put new skirting board all around this house uh, because we have it's got a concrete floor and I need to run my power lines through skirting board. Uh, it's an easy way to get them around the house because the place has sort of plugs in it, mm. uh, which is pretty inconvenient. Um, and you know, skirting this this type of trunking skirting board comes in certain lengths. So to work out how much I need, I write a program. Nice. That works all out for me. Tells me exactly how to cut it, and all the because it's just for me the easiest thing to do. Yeah, I'd be um, measuring every corner and wall. You know. <laughs> so um, you know, it, it's a tool. It's a tool for me. I'd, I'd use it any time. It, it's convenient, just like you know, you pick up a pair of scissors when you want to cut a bit of paper. Well, John, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us this week. No problem. And if uh, people want to keep up to date with you, have you uh, got a website they can visit? Uh, yeah, I updated last uh, about 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, www.ritman.co.uk. Ritman.